Isaiah chapter 53. It's an incredible passage of Scripture. And um, I tell folks, if you understand this passage, you understand a fancy theological term. This is all about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. This is about salvation. This is about understanding this message. And um, uh, for some time, for about a year, I've been preaching this message. And I put a title on it, simply one word. I say, if you understand this one word, you understand Isaiah 53. If you understand this one word, you understand the substitutionary atonement. If you understand this one word, you understand salvation. The word is for. Not the number, the preposition. Christ died for you. When I pastored in Chicago, we had a large Ethiopian group that had a separate afternoon service. And um, one day, one of the Ethiopian families talked to me and they said their son, who was five, had gotten saved that day. But they were a little worried about his age, whether he really understood or not. I wouldn't know if I'd talk to him. I was happy to talk with him, but I wasn't worried about it. I hate to break all this to you and hope it doesn't hurt anybody's pride, but children understand salvation easier than adults do. Salvation is receiving a gift. You offer an adult a gift, they say, oh, what do I have to give back? What do I have to do to deserve this? How do I have to be even on the gift-giving scale? What happens if you offer a child a gift? They just take it. I have more trouble with 45 and 55-year-old adults on salvation than I do 5-year-old children. My son got saved when he was 4. My wife got saved when she was 4. I didn't get saved till I was 10. Every now and then I'll tell my wife, I said, you ought to be really more spiritually advanced than I am because you got saved six years sooner. And um, I grabbed, I, I never even church first time until I was 10. But boy came in, cute little fellow named Boaz. And um, I said, Bo came in my office and I said, Boaz, I heard you got saved. He said, that's right, pastor. I said, can you tell me what being saved means? He looked at me and he said, it means Jesus died for my sins and I forget all that other stuff. If you're discussing salvation, go ahead and forget all the other stuff. There's one issue. Christ died for our sins. The Jewish folks will tell you that Isaiah 53 is about the nation of Israel, but you'll find in every single verse personal pronouns. This is about a person. Read the first two verses, you'll find, figure out quick who the person is. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. That, that phrase, root out of a dry ground, a generation is not normal. This is a prophecy of the virgin birth. This done, generation didn't come about. Life did not come about the normal way. This is about a person who is virgin born. Boy, that'll cut down who the nominees are to be the subject of this passage real quick. Only one in the history of the world that fits this definition. Every other human being was conceived the same way. Only one person this chapter could be about. This chapter is about the Lord Jesus Christ. He hath no form or comeliness. We shall see him. There's no beauty. We should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Every time you think of Christ, you have a reminder of what it meant when all of our sin was laid on him. Verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Man, if you get the word for, you can get this. I was preaching uh, last year in the Philippines. And um, uh, it custom many Filipino churches. They'll have what they call evangelistic Sunday or evangelistic Sunday night. And they'll have it once or twice a year. And they plan for months. They promote it for months. They get you to invite your friends and do everything you can. And they put a big push on to have as many lost people in service as they possibly can. And I was preaching a fairly large church and met a lot of children in the service. It, it was an incredible moment, by the way. It was evangelistic Sunday night, but the people were so excited and so worked up and, and so thrilled to be there. And I mean, they had worked so hard. They had 67 first-time visitors saved on Sunday morning. They weren't content to wait for Sunday evening. Sunday evening, there were visitors all over the place. And there was a bunch of children. And I told the children a story about the Ethiopian boy and told him, if you'll just get this one word for me, you can understand this message no matter how, what your age is, the word for. I preached and God blessed us with over 200 people saved that night. And on the way out, all little Filipino children walking up to him said, for, for, they only know they got it, for. A little bit later, I was in Cambodia. And I was preaching in Cambodia. I was preaching in that town. I'll mention it again before the service is over. But I was preaching in this town. And, and uh, this Cambodia is a Buddhist country. But it had a Muslim section. And this was in the Muslim section of a Buddhist country. And they told me, we're going to go have an evangelistic meeting at 10 o'clock Thursday morning. And I'm thinking, American, who's coming out at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning? I get there and there's about 50 adults. That was impressive. But then the public school in the Muslim section of this Buddhist country, started busing kids in. They brought in over 230 fourth, fifth, and sixth graders to our evangelistic meeting. There's nowhere in the United States that could happen. I suspect there's not anywhere in Canada that could happen, but it happened there. They sent four adults with them to watch them. If you sent four adults to watch 230 kids in the United States, you would have a disaster on your hands before you know what happened. But it, it worked pretty well. And so I was telling them the story about the Filipino kids being translated in English and preached on the gospel and for Christ died for us. And we had over a hundred of those children come forward to trust Christ as their Savior. And on the way out, the Cambodian children, many of whom did not normally speak English, oh, I got four, four, four. Last July, I was in Togo, Africa, out in the jungle. When I got there, I really hadn't planned to preach this message. But when I sat in the jungle, the village had no electricity. And they had a generator that could power three light bulbs. So there are more people there than are here. All kinds of children there. Packed with thatched grass uh, walls and a tin roof. And uh, three light bulbs. And I couldn't see to read the scripture. And I thought, I better use a message I have memorized. So I got up and preached this and I told them what happened. And I, I told them about the Ethiopian boy and I told them about the Filipino kids and I told them about the Cambodian kids. After I preached, they asked if I would leave and then come back. They said if there's an American here during the invitation, everybody just automatically comes forward. And we want people to come forward because God's working on So I left and came back. When, when I came back, they told me that 15 of those children had trusted Christ as their Savior. And on the way out, they were walking up and going, four for, for, Christ died for us. Amen. 
That is the issue of the gospel. I came from a rough home, rough background. My parents were what Americans would call hillbillies. They'd moved to the big city in the 30s when, when lots of folks did in the United States. But my dad came from a rough background. Never met his father. Moved out on his own when he was 12. Lived a rough life. His idea of recreation was going to bars and getting in fights. I mean, he's just a rough man. Never been in a church his entire life. He despised churches. He despised Christianity. He did not believe God was real, made no secret about it. He would not only not attend a church service, he would not go to a wedding or funeral if it was in a church building. I was 10 years old. lady came by, knocking on the doors in our street, working on a bus route, wanting to pick up children and take them to church. I've always been an incredibly curious person. It's just my nature. I'd seen church buildings. I wondered what happened in church buildings. I wanted to see. So my parents weren't home. I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. And made arrangements. The bus was going to come by. The parents came home. I told my dad. He said, you're kidding. He said, you're a stringer. Stringers do not go to church. Which is kind of funny now since I'm in church virtually every day of my life. <laughs> I live in church-owned property and have most of my adult life. But his stringers don't go in church buildings. But I went. He didn't stop me. I went. And I figured out something. Those folks had something I didn't understand. And I was curious. And I wanted to know more about it. And they were so gracious. I told, I found out they had church on Thursday, or on Sunday night. And I was utterly amazed. And so I, I asked if I'd come on Sunday night. They picked me up for Sunday night. I found out they had church on Thursday night. Again, I was amazed. What really shocked me, I came that first Thursday night. And I would always sit in the front row right in that spot. Right there. And I got there, and I was missing half the people I saw on Sunday morning. I couldn't understand that. But, by the way, I still don't understand it all these years later. But I came in and would sit there, and I'd come in on Thursday night and sit there. I had no idea how to act. I had no idea how to behave. But I thought they were the friendliest people in the world because every service, there would always be somebody sitting with me. I found out years later, after I was grown as a preacher, they assigned people to sit with me. One man told me it was his job to sit with me the first Sunday night of every month. And they had somebody assigned to every service. He had Sunday night. And, and, and by the way, I will be eternally grateful. And not a figure of speech. I mean forever, I will be grateful that they did not have to invest in a bus kid like that who was coming without their parents. But I came after a few weeks I got saved. Parents wouldn't let me get baptized, but I got saved and I knew I knew the Lord. And I started on my dad trying to get dad to church. I bothered him and bothered him and bothered him. And he said, no and no and no. Finally, he looked at me and he said, I will go one time if you will stop bothering me. I hope you're all in a forgiving mood. He came once and I didn't stop bothering him. <laughs> he came one time. He talked about everybody in church was phony and, and hypocrites. Christianity wasn't real. A man came in, saw him there, recognized that he was a visitor. He didn't know anybody. He's sitting by himself. That man sat with him, talked to him before Sunday school, sat with him during Sunday school, talked to him between Sunday school and church, sat with him during church, talked to him after church. He had no idea who he was talking to or what the situation or background was, but he destroyed everything my dad ever said against Christianity that morning. Dad was impressed. He wouldn't admit it, but he's impressed and he quit saying anything against the church, but I couldn't get him to go back. A few weeks later, he knew I had some physical problems. He went to the doctor's office 
And the doctor told him, took the test and had him come back in. He said, I'm sorry, we have bad news for you. You have a disease that is fatal. There's nothing we can do to help you. You have a few weeks to live. My dad came home stunned, told my mom and I, we're sitting in the living room all crying. And my dad looked at my mom and said, would you call the boys preacher? He only lived four blocks away. He's there in five minutes. And he came in. My dad told him the news he'd gotten. The preacher said, could I show you from the Bible how a person can know they're going to heaven? He sat down next to my dad and I sat next to the preacher and was in on the whole thing. And the preacher went to John 3.16. And then he went to four verses in Romans. And then he went to Ephesians 2.8.9, which still to this day when I'm witnessing to somebody is where I, well, exactly what I do. And shared the gospel with him. And my dad didn't get it. He looked at him and he thought he had to confess all the sins of a rough life. And he said, preacher, you don't understand what I have done. And the preacher looked at him and said, Bob, that's not the problem. You don't understand what he's done. He said, if you understood what he's done, you would understand the issue is not what you've done. It's what he did. Christ died for you. And then he went back to John 3.16 and four verses in Romans and Ephesians 2.8.9. And my father trusted Christ as his Savior. Because he came to grips with this. It's not about him. It's about Jesus and what Jesus did when Jesus died for him. That is always the issue in the gospel. Christ died for you. First church I pastored. 400 seat auditorium. 20 people. I mean, every person stood out on Sunday morning. And there was a young lady, early 20s. She would come in late every Sunday morning and leave early. But when I was preaching, some people, you cannot read the look on their face when you're preaching. But but some folks, you can tell everything they're thinking. And she really looked like she's under conviction about salvation. And I asked the church secretary who she was. I'd never had a chance to shake her hand or meet her or anything. And she said, Pastor, you better stay away from this. Just leave this alone. I said, why? And they said, her husband's in his mid-60s. She's the new trophy wife of a mafia hitman. And he is so jealous of his young wife, she's forbidden to speak to another male. And he asks her every night, did you speak to a male today? And she comes late, leaves early, so that she can honestly tell him, no, I did not. And so I got to talk to him. She said, not a good idea. So I have to. And I dug up an address way out in the country, isolated. I went out looking for it and I got lost and I stopped. Someone asked for directions. They said, you don't want to go back there. I said, nobody wants to go back there. I went back, knocked on a door. This big, angry-looking, gruff man answered the door. He said, who are you? So I'm the pastor of the church. You know, back where the highway hits that road and all that, the church. I said, I'm the pastor of the church. So, what are you doing here? I said, well, your wife attends our services some, but to be honest with you, I've never got to meet her. She comes late, leaves early. I've never had a chance to say a word to her, but I was hoping I could come out and talk to her. And maybe you about the Lord. Him. You know who I am? About nose to nose with me when he said that. I said, sir, I admit I've heard stories. But right now as I'm standing here talking to you, I'm kind of hoping they're not true. <laughs> and he did exactly what you did. He laughed and said, ah, come on in. 
With His blessing, I sat down and went to John 3.16 and four verses in Romans and Ephesians 2.8.9 and shared them with His wife, with Him in the room. And she trusted Christ as her Savior. He looked at her, said, you can go to that church anytime you want. There are no restrictions, no limitations. By the way, when it's the only place you're allowed to go, you get faithful really quick. She came Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival meeting, everything. Every once in a while, he'd even come to service. I had three policemen in the church. They would just stare when he walked in. It's funny sitting up here. Watch him. One day, the secretary called me. So Pat, they had a little baby girl. And I was at the hospital when she was born, sitting in a waiting room with him and his mafia buddies. They did not take to me the way he did. I mean, it was awkward for them. And then that year later, they had another little baby girl born, and I was at the hospital in the waiting room with them all. And one day, I get a call from the secretary. She said, Pastor, I don't know how to say this. But there's some mafia guys looking for you. <laughs> and I said, well, you can tell them where I'm at. I said, we're kind of friends. They came to get me. They said, look, Fritz is in a hospital. He had a heart attack. They say they got to do surgery right away. But he's got two of our guys there under orders not to let the doctors touch him until you get there. And he told us to get you and bring you to the hospital. I said, okay, I'll meet you there. And they said, no, we'll have somebody drive your car home. He told us to bring you. So I rode with him in the hospital. Walked into cardiac care. He looked at me. He said, did you mean it? I said, what do you mean, Fritz? He said, you said that Christ would save even me. Did you mean that? I said, well, I meant it, but that's not the important part of the story. Here's the important part of the story. He meant it. If the Bible's true, he died for you. And right there, with his buddies around, with medical people around, he asked me to explain it again. And I went to John 3, 16, four verses in Romans and Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And he trusted Christ as his Savior. Because you understand who Christ died for? He died for him. A few weeks later, as he recovered from surgery, he came to church and got baptized. And you should really watch my police folks when that happened. People asked me, he, he... Changed professions, right? And I said, I assume. I didn't ask a lot of questions. I know this. He made a good church member because he couldn't stand it when anybody disagreed with the pastor about anything. We were having a fuss in a church one time and he came to me after service. He said, do you want something done about those people? And you know what I did, pastor? I lied to him. I said, no. I think he meant, do you want me to scare them? But I was afraid to find out. I just let it go. But I know this much. Christ died for him. Do you understand? For him. Same church. There's an abortion clinic near us. I was a young preacher. Young preachers, one of the things you learn a discipline as a preacher, you have to learn not to say everything that crosses your mind. And in the early days of being a preacher, it just stuff just comes out. And this lady was in the news all the time. And I just, preaching against her kept popping up in the middle of my sermons, whether I planned it or not. Lady came up to me after Sunday morning service and said, Pastor, you know that's my next door neighbor. Said, every time you mention her, I go home and tell her what you said. Said, she wants to meet with you. 
I thought, this is going to be fun. So I gave her a time and said, you tell her. And I, I memorized the verses I wanted to use, the statistics. I had these cards. I studied, had everything memorized. I'm ready to have the mother of all debates about abortion. She comes in, sits in the chair in front of my desk, puts her head in her hands and begins to weep like a baby. I have no idea what's going on, what to do. I said, ma'am, is there something I can do for you? And she said, I'd like to be saved, but God would never have me. There's too much blood on my hands. He'd never save me. I said, ma'am, I've got good news for you. John 3.16 and four verses in Romans and Ephesians 2.8.9. And she trusted Christ as her Savior, closed the abortion clinic, and I baptized her the next Sunday morning. You should have seen the entire crowd when I gave the name of the person I was baptizing. Christ died for her. Did y'all get it? Let, let, let's go on a little bit. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. I was pastor in Chicago. And a young lady graduated from the University of Michigan, moved two blocks from our church. She walked in service one Sunday morning. And my wife and I visited her. And she said, she said I grew up Catholic. So I would go to the Catholic church every morning as a child. As a teenager, my friends were Pentecostals, and so I went to the Pentecostal church. She said in college, I, my dorm was right across from a Buddhist temple, and I went to the Buddhist temple every week. She said the Catholics told me what works I had to do to be saved. Pentecostals told me what works I had to do to be saved. And the Buddhists told me what works I had to do to be saved. But they all disagreed with each other. She said, I really would like to be saved. Can you tell me what works I need to do to be saved? I said, No. She looked at me. She said, you're a preacher and you can't tell me what I have to, what works I have to do to be saved. I said, no, that's not the problem. Works don't save you. What Christ did on the cross saves you. We had this conversation. She kept coming to church, but we had this conversation a number of times. And she just had so much confusion in her background, she couldn't get it. One Sunday, she told me, next week, my boyfriend's coming down from Michigan. She said, we've been talking about this. Could we just sit down after the service and talk until I can finally understand this? And I said, you got it. We will not leave my office Sunday morning until after this is clear to you. We sit down in my office, talk for an hour. The boyfriend got it, trusted Christ. He's helping me try to explain it to her. She still doesn't have it. We talk for a second hour. This is going to sound like a wise plan on my part, but it wasn't. I was stalling. I'd run out of things to say. I told every story I could think of. I'd, I'd use verse after verse after verse. She still didn't get it. There's this great old song. My faith has found a resting place. And I, there's a line in this song. And I asked her if she'd mind repeating the line a few times. What I really meant was, will you give me some time to think? i got to figure out what to say next. Here's the line. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And she started on it. It is enough that Jesus died that he died for me. It is enough that Jesus died that he died for me. It is enough that Jesus died for me and that he died for me. It is enough that Jesus died that he died for me. The fifth time. 
it is enough. She said with incredible surprise in her voice, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And the sixth time, at the top of her lungs, it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Guess what? It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for you. Over and over again, you get the same truth. I pastored an area with lots of Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus in it. People would ask me how I dealt with them. And I learned to do this. Uh, they would always tell me what they were. They wanted to see what my reaction was. I'm talking to a Bosnian young lady one time. And, and she said, well, i got to tell you first. She said, I'm a Muslim. Oh, really? That's interesting. To be honest with you, I don't know much about Islam. But I do know one thing about every Muslim that walks the face of the earth. I'd say that Buddhist or whatever, never failed. They would ask me, what is the one thing you know? That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died for you. Because I don't want to talk about Buddhism and I don't want to talk about Hindu. I wanted to talk about what was done for their salvation. Okay? And that particular young lady got saved, got to lead several Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus to Christ in that very conversation. Christ died for us. I was telling you about the moment out, out in Cambodia. The region we were in is where the remnants of Pol Pot's army is. If you know anything about Pol Pot, 70s, communist dictator, took over Cambodia. He believed that the reason communism never worked is because there are too many people who couldn't adjust. And the key to turning the earth into a worker's paradise was to kill all the people who couldn't adjust to communism. So he set out in five years, the population of nine million, he killed, had three million people killed. You go there today and there's a genocide museum. 36 rooms of pictures. They said nobody ever gets through all, the whole thing. I got through 13 rooms said I can't do this anymore. I went to one of the killing fields where they buried. And in that particular killing field, they've come up with 25,000 skulls. And, and they take you through it and explain. They, a bulldozer come in, dig a hole. People stand in a hole. They kill them. They push their dirt over them. Then go right to the next spot, dig a hole, etc. And they tell you, if you see, their bones are working their way up to the service. If you see a bone, so we go around every Sunday morning and pick up all the bones that came up that week. If you see a bone, leave it there. We sat on a bench for a bit of rest in the middle, and right there was an arm bone sticking right up out of the ground. I go on and on. Eventually, their armies were overthrown. They fought a 10-year civil war. Their armies moved into this region. They reached a deal with the government. You don't come after us. We won't be in trouble anymore. But they still have armed camps all these years later. We were in that region with an armed Pol Pot camp in sight. My interpreter, father had been a doctor. Pol Pot, had, Pol Pot had kidnapped him, took him around with him, so had a doctor wherever he went, and spared his family and said, allowed him to see his family two hours a week just so he'd know they were still alive and they were going to be alive as long as he properly serviced the leadership. And he told me before the service started, you see all those men out there? They're Pol Pot soldiers. Some of them are officers. And when I preached, I told them that Jesus Christ died for them, for every one of them. And when we gave the invitation, 25 of Paul Pot's people, either soldiers or their wives, trusted Christ as their Savior. Because you want to know who Christ died for? Everybody, including them. Let me go on. 
Verse 9, he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. When someone came to the tabernacle or the temple to make an offering, the priest would meet them and they asked him, what do you bring as an offering today? Poor folks would say, I brought a turtle dove. More medium income folks would say, I brought a lamb. The wealthy would say, I brought a bullock. One day Christ strode into the temple of heaven and answered the question, what did you bring as an offering today? And he brought his own blood to pay for our sin. He shall see his seed. Prophecy of resurrection. Prolong his days. Prophecy of resurrection. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. But his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. That word justify is a legal term. It means to be tried in court and be found innocent. There is this scene. You get little hints of it all through the Bible. The scene is of a courtroom and, and God, the creator of the universe, is the judge. Satan is the prosecuting attorney and the accuser. His very name means accuser, Satan. Satan is there. I am the accused. He is there to say that Phil Stringer is a sinner. And man, I'm in trouble. Like every preacher at one time or another, I've been accused of things I was innocent of. And I just smile and dare folks to prove it. But I'm not, not going to dare Satan to prove his accusation. But there's a fourth person in the story. I have a defense attorney, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the Bible says that the uh, handwriting of the ordinances against me was nailed to his cross. You know what happens when you nail paper to a cross where someone's being crucified? The blood covers it. Here I am. I'm in trouble. Satan is about to accuse me before the creator of the universe of being a sinner, of having violated his law. But he makes the first indictment. And my defense attorney says, Your Honor, that indictment is not admissible in this court because you cannot read it. It is blood covered. No courtroom in the universe accepts an indictment that cannot be read. And then the second indictment. My defense attorney says, Your Honor, that needs to be thrown out because you can't read it. I don't know how many indictments there are, and I don't want to know. But every one of them gets thrown out of court on the grounds they cannot be read. And the reason they cannot be read is they're blood-stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the trial, I am declared innocent. I am justified. I am declared innocent of all sin. Say, Brother Stringer, uh, we know folks that know you. Folks know better than that. Do you understand in legal terms there's something called a legal fiction? It's legally true, even though it's not factually true. I don't know about Canada, but all 50 states, if you adopt a baby, they give you a birth certificate that says the baby was born to you. I've been with families when they got it. What a precious moment. You say, but it's not true. It's legally true. Legally, that child was born to you. If in the United States, you get found innocent in a courtroom, and you actually committed the crime, for some reason you get found innocent, you are legally innocent. Are you ready? In God's courtroom, I am legally innocent of every accusation that Satan would make against me. Because they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in the courtroom of heaven dealing with salvation, they do not count. I am justified. For he bore my sins. 
If you look at the end of verse 12, again, when it talks about what Christ did, it says, He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I was, two years ago, I was in another church in the Philippines on Evangelistic Sunday. For Sunday morning, all they were doing for Sunday school is they had people who had been saved during the last year to give their testimony about when they were saved. That was a whole Sunday school. There were thousands of people. Huge place. 16-year-old Filipino girl there. She'd never spoken in front of a crowd before. And now she's in front of thousands of people. And, and you're going to tell them about when she got saved. And she's been praying for her mom and dad to get saved for months and she got them there. And she's written out her testimony because she's scared. How would you like to make that your first public speaking attempt? And, and the theme of what she wrote was precious. Salvation is precious. She got up. She started reading it. She looked at the crowd. She got scared. She started crying. They let her sit down on the front row, which was where I happened to be sitting. They had some more people get up and give their testimony. And then they had her get up again. And she started reading it again. And this time she got farther, but she still didn't get to the end and she broke down crying. They brought her up a third time. She started reading it again and she got farther, but she still didn't get to the end. She broke down crying and she's sitting right next to me when she comes back down and she's bawling. She's heartbroken. She said, I ruined everything. My mom and dad are here, but I ruined everything when I had a chance to tell them about salvation. And I said, young lady, you may not get it, but I'm telling you everybody that was present got it. There is no more eloquent testimony about how precious salvation is than the one you just gave. I said, don't you worry about it. I got to preach a little bit later, preached on the gospel, gave an invitation. Pastor got up and said, if you're wanting to come to pray for some of the reason, don't come forward, go to the back. We need to reserve the front. And 311 people, including her mom and dad, came to get saved. Do you understand? There is no message more precious than this. Christ died for you. Again, I was in the Philippines two years ago. I was my last night there. I was going to Japan. And the preacher mentioned that I was going to Japan and uh, pray for me in a trip there and all that. And after the service, there was a lady there. Her dad had gotten saved six weeks before, adult lady. Been trying to get her to come to church. So we got American preaching tonight. She came to hear the American. They're just nice in the Philippines. They do that all the time. They call it a preacher's paradise. It's the only place I know of where we can go when people come to hear us because we're American. It's great. It's the reason I go every year. And she came. And she came up to me after the service. She said, what airline are you flying to Japan on? I told her. She said, well, I work for that airline. She said, I'm in charge of the flights to Japan. So would you mind coming a little early and coming by my office? I went by and she got me bumped up at no cost to a first class ticket, which was really nice. And she said, can I ask you a question? Sure. She said, this salvation thing my dad keeps talking about and that you were talking about last night. She said, is that just for Baptists or can a Catholic get saved too? I said, you got a few minutes? She said, yes. John 3.16, four verses in Romans and Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And she trusted Christ as her Savior. I was back last year and I wondered what happened to her. Sometimes people make professions, you never hear from them again. I was going to preach at the same church. We got there early and she was there leading the choir practice. She told me she went to the church the next Sunday, told them she got saved and she wanted to be baptized. They baptized her, found out she had musical ability. And pretty soon they had her directing the choir. 
Hey, man, if I got good news, fill in the blank. Is this for Catholics too? Is this for Muslims too? Is this for atheists too? Is this for people who've never been to church before too? Is this for children too? Is this for... Fill in the blank any way you want to. Christ died for you. Two things. And then I've got to skip out of here. If you're here this morning, never trusted Christ as your Savior. You ought to trust Him today. Respond to the pastor as he leads invitation. I have preached this message and seen it over and over again where there'd be somebody there that never trusted Christ. Easter Sunday, I was preaching this message. Man came forward. He said, man, he said, I came to church because it was Easter. He said, I didn't know all this. But did you, did you really mean to say Christ died for me? So my life's a mess. Christ died for him. He trusted Christ as his Savior. I was preaching at church out in Maryland. And they told me, he said, there's a young man. He's come forward seven weeks in a row. He always says, I can't get it. I want to, but I just cannot believe somebody else could pay for my sin. How could that possibly be right? And he's come forward seven weeks in a row. He came forward again. And he wanted to talk to me. And I sat down and he said, I'm not trying to be difficult. He said, I just can't get it. How could somebody else pay for my sin? I said, can I let you in on a secret? So I have trouble understanding it too. It does not make sense to my human mind that somebody else could pay my penalty. But I said, here's the deal. He said he did. The one who raised from the dead says that's what he did. And I'm not arguing with the one who raised himself from the dead. He looked at me and said, I believe. Trusted Christ as a Savior and came for baptism that night. That same night, as we were getting ready to have church service, a lady walked in and she just walked up to one of the ladies. She said, I was here this morning for the first time. And she looked at me and she said, I heard what that man said. She said, I couldn't believe it. She said, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it all afternoon. Is that really true? Did Christ die for me? And a lady led her to Christ right on the front pew, waiting for the service to get going. If you've never trusted Christ, you ought to trust Him this morning. And then can I tell you, there is a world for us to take this message to. You will never meet anybody but what Christ died for them. Say, well, I'm not a theologian. I don't know how to preach. Yeah, but can you tell somebody that Christ died for them? Can you share one word with them for Christ died for them?